I want to welcome those here in our celebration service, also those in our summit service. Got to spend just a moment with them a little earlier. And of course, all of those that are watching us online and on our broadcast. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. And in a moment or two, we will be together in verse 30. But I wanted to share before we jumped back into the book of Ephesians today, uh, I wanted to share with you something that, um, well, maybe it's too strong of a word to call it a discovery, but something I uh, stumbled across yesterday in my studies. I was uh, here at the church early and was searching uh, for some reference in the Old Testament that described how it is that we should approach the Word of God. And it's uh, part of a writing project that I'm, that I'm doing. I'll be able to share more about perhaps a little later, but I was, I was searching for those verses that would help us to understand just how God's Word plays this distinctive role uh, for Christians today and for, for Jews, of course, in, in Old Testament times. And if you're a student of the Bible, some verses immediately come to mind. I think about Joshua 1.8, uh, which commands us to meditate and to obey God's word. Uh, I think about Psalm 1, uh, 1 through 3 that talks about meditating upon God's word. I think about Psalm 19 that speaks of cherishing God's word. I think of Psalm 119 that speaks uh, of, of memorizing God's word. Uh, but still, I, I couldn't find that passage that really helped define the distinctiveness of God's Word until I finally turned to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I came across a passage that will be very familiar to you uh, that I think just explains it. I think it just settles the, the matter. Uh, Moses at this point is reintroducing God to the Hebrew people. For many generations, they had not been faithful to worship God. They had been slaves in Egypt and they had not really heard from God. Uh, but now God has spoken through Moses and Moses is trying to teach these Hebrew people how it is that they are to worship and to respond to God. And in those days, the normal way that a person or a group of people would respond to the divine if they were going to worship something, they would do so through a statue or an idol that they could keep in their homes or they would point to the sun or the moon or to some constellation of stars, but there would be something, maybe a building, and they would worship the divine. They would worship what they thought was God through some object. And so how is Moses going to introduce the one true living God? Well, he didn't give them a building. He didn't give them a statue. He didn't point to the moon or to the stars. He gave them some words. And I want to read these to you. This is uh, what the Jews call the Shema. It's uh, at least part of what they refer to. And, and this is words by God and about God. Moses said, here it is, this is it. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your strength. Moses said, if you wanna know about God, 
You don't need a statue. You don't need a, a building. You need a word. And this is the word. He goes on in the next few verses and says, these words that I'm giving you today uh, should be on your heart. You should repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit at your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorpost of your homes and on your city gates. He said, this is it, the word of God. And ever since then, that has been one of the primary distinctions in what we understand how we worship the one true living God. We do so by focusing our attention upon the revealed word. This is not a faith of statues and idols, but this is a faith based upon the word of God. And, and that influences everything we do. Have you ever wondered why in our church that the pulpit, the sacred desk they used to call this, why it is absolutely in the middle of the platform? You go to a lot of churches and it'll be in a lot of different places and that's for a whole nother sermon. But why is it that we put it here? Because the preaching of God's word is the central part of worship. And the understanding of God's word is the central part of living out our Christian lives. That's why the preaching of God's word is the, is the time-wise the biggest part of worship because we worship God through his word. The Bible says we worship in spirit and in truth. So, all of that to say, I was so excited a few weeks ago, several weeks ago, uh, when our worship pastor, Tom Webster, came to me with an idea and with a suggestion, uh, frankly, I've never heard of before, uh, but it was, uh, it was centered upon the Word of God, and so it was easy to get excited about this. Tom suggested that our church read the entire Bible in a week out loud. Now, just let that sink in. That's a long time and a lot of words, and you're thinking it won't fit into my schedule, your schedule. But here's his suggestion. What if we went out on the front steps of the church and we had someone stand and begin to read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and they just read until they were finished. And then they sat down and somebody else stood up. And they picked up where the first person left off and they read until they were finished. And then another person and another person. And if, what if we did that on Sunday and Monday and Tuesday? We did it late at night and early in the morning. We didn't stop until we were finished reading the entire Bible aloud. And I thought, that's something that we need to do. And, and I thought about a passage in Deuteronomy 31. I won't read this whole passage, but uh, this isn't the first time this has happened. It says, when all Israel assembles in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he chooses, you are to read this law aloud before the nation. Gather the people within your city gates so that they may listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to follow all the words of the law. And then their children who do not know the law will listen and they will learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going to possess across the, 
across the Jordan. Let me tell you why I think this is a good idea. First of all, uh, we want to announce to our city that this is a Bible place. We are a Bible church. We believe the Bible from the first pages to the last pages. We are a Bible people. We believe that the Bible honors God. We believe the Bible tells us how to worship God. We believe the Bible tells us how to live. We believe the Bible tells us what is right and what is wrong. We are Bible people. And I think by standing and just reading through the Bible, we make in part that statement that we are Bible people. I think also it speaks uh, to, the, to the history of God's people. Uh, we, have, um, we have built our faith upon the word of God. And to stand and do that, I think it says something significant. I also think it'll generate some excitement and some enthusiasm for Easter Sunday. Now we know that every Sunday is the day we celebrate the resurrection. But uh, once a year in our culture, we set aside Easter as the day that so many people in our community gather here and other places to celebrate the resurrection. And so we wanna do this the week before Easter and all week long as people drive by our church and see people standing out there and reading God's word, uh, it will encourage them, I believe, to join us for an Easter celebration on um, Sunday, April the 17th. So let me give you the, the logistics of this. You can sign up for your time slot on our website, fbcnac.org. Uh, I checked it just before I came out here, and it's easy to sign up. Uh, I'm signed up. Somebody else signed me up, I think. But, uh, but I noticed my name was there, so I'm signed up, and I'm happy about that. So it's easy to sign up. You can pick your own 15-minute spot, or you can pick a bunch of 15-minute spots. We will start when church ends on Good Friday, on Good Friday, on Palm Sunday, uh, which is uh, April the 10th. So when, when our services end, Celebration and Summit, we will move out here to this, uh, to this area outside the church, and we'll just start. We'll all be there together, everybody that wants to stay. And some people will stay five or 10 minutes, some maybe a little longer, but we'll just start reading. And then we'll read 24 hours a day. Uh, if we finish, we'll start over because we want to officially finish uh, on Friday around noon. Uh, so we need somebody to read at 2 o'clock in the morning and 2.15 in the morning and 3 o'clock. Uh, we'll have all of the lights and the uh, sound system. We'll have security here so that won't be a problem. We'll make sure that it's safe all day, all night. But if you'd like to be a part of this, you and your family, and so I, I joked about them signing me up. I get the privilege of reading first, and that's where I'm, I'm signed up. Uh, but me and my family want to sign up uh, to come as a family uh, at some other times during the week, probably more than once, and just me and my family just be a part of standing and reading. Wherever, wherever the church happens to be when we get up there, reading together in God's Word and uh, I'm excited about this. I, I think God will honor this, and I hope you'll get excited about it. You can sign up now. Uh, all the uh, slots are open, and we'll be talking about this much in the days to come. Well, we are in the book of Ephesians, and we've been here now for a number of months. Today we come to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, and it's just one short verse, but it is packed with meaning. 
if you've glanced at the outline in the worship bulletin, you see that there's much for us to go through. I'll tell you that I really rethought this this morning. And ordinarily, when we gather and focus on a verse like this in Ephesians, and we've been doing this for months and months and months, we try to learn everything we can possibly learn about that verse. And we're going to do some of that today. But I'm going to go through the message outline fairly quickly this morning because I, I want us to celebrate what we'll talk about at the end. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, the Bible says, don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Simple verse. Don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed for him, with him, by him, for the day of redemption. Now, we spoke of the Holy Spirit last week when we were focusing on the, uh, the command in the book of Ephesians to be filled with the Spirit. And so I thought it would be a good, a good time now then to maybe skip through a few verses that we'll come back to and focus again on the Spirit and specifically this command, don't grieve the Spirit. Now, before we get into what that means, let's, let's just see some things that we can learn about the Spirit before we get to the the action of grieving the Spirit. Let's see some things we can learn about the Spirit from this, from this verse. We'll go through this quickly. First of all, the Holy Spirit is real. The Holy Spirit is, is real. He is a person. We don't refer to the Spirit as an it. Uh, this is not the, the Star Wars force. Uh, the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit you can have a relationship with the Spirit. We'll see that the Spirit has volition. The Spirit cares for us. The Spirit is involved in our lives. The Spirit is real. Number two, He has, the Spirit has, a personal role with each of us. He tells us here that the Spirit seals us for the day of redemption. That means that when we become children of God, when we are adopted in God's family, our relationship with God is maintained and guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is working in us and around us. The Holy Spirit guarantees our salvation. You know, I was never good enough to be a child of God. I became a child of God by the grace and the mercy of God. And since becoming a child of God, I have not been good enough to stay a child of God. But thankfully, God's grace has saved me and God's Holy Spirit has sealed me into this, into this relationship. He has a personal role with each of us. Next, he cares about you. It says here that the Holy Spirit uh, can be grieved over us and our actions. Well, the only way the Holy Spirit could be grieved over us, whatever that means, we'll see in a moment, is if he cares for us. You're not grieved by the actions of someone that you don't care about. The Holy Spirit cares about you. Next, he ministers to us. He ministers to us. We've already seen here the sealing of the Holy Spirit, the sealing for the day of redemption. 
But the Bible tells us throughout that the Holy Spirit plays this role in our life as a comforter, as a guide, and as an advocate for us. I think about what Jesus said in John 16, 7, it is for your benefit that I go away. Jesus said to his disciples, I'm leaving and don't get upset. It's better, you're better off when I do. He says, I go away because if I don't go away, the counselor, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. Well, who is Jesus sending to us? Who has Jesus sent to us? He has sent to us the Holy Spirit who is our comforter. Uh, the Bible word is the word paraclete. He is the one para comes, aside, comes uh, to our side and, and is our counselor who guides us, advocates for us. Number five, he is sensitive to our sin. It says here that when we sin, that the Holy Spirit is grieved over that sin. Did you know that in the Bible there are four different ways that we can sin specifically against the Holy Spirit. Now, when we sin, of course, we're sinning against the triune God. God, Father, Son, and Spirit. God is holy. God's standards, the standard of perfection. And anytime we fall short, we fall short and we sin against God. But there are some ways, some very specific ways that you can sin against the Holy Spirit, that in some way, some sins are not just sins against the triune God, but some sins in some special way are sins against the Spirit. And he highlights one here. He says, don't grieve the Spirit. Can I take just a moment and walk through the sins against the Spirit? What are those four sins? What are the special ways that people can sin against the Spirit? And again, I'm going to go through this pretty quickly, but the Bible gives us these, and not everybody can be guilty of all of these, but it's important to know what they are and whether or not this could be true in your life. So the first sin is resisting the Spirit. We see that in Acts 7.51. It says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. This is a sin that lost people can commit. This isn't something that um, a child of God would do or could do. Uh, as, uh, we have a different relationship with the Holy Spirit. But a lost person, a person who has not been adopted into the family of God, who is not a follower of Christ, a lost person, when the Spirit is moving and calling that person to God, he can resist the Spirit. Now, I want you to see that the fact that someone can resist the Spirit is both a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing in the sense that it tells us that the Holy Spirit is working on us, right? If the Holy Spirit weren't working on us, then, then we couldn't resist the Holy Spirit. So just the fact that it's possible to resist the Holy Spirit tells me that the Holy Spirit is working in the life of every person. Now. The bad news is resisting the Spirit is listed in Scripture as um, one of these very, very dangerous sins. What does it mean to resist the Spirit? The Holy Spirit of God, for a person who is not a child of God, will work in his life, work in her life to convict them of sin, uh, 
to help them to see the hopelessness that they have apart from Christ, will help them to feel the weight and the gravity of sin. That's the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. And when that convicting power, when that conviction comes in a person's life, then that person can either embrace that and choose to follow Christ, or that person can resist it, resist it. What are the consequences of resisting uh, the Holy Spirit? Well, one of the consequences is just simply running out of time. Uh, There will one day be a day when it'll be too late to respond to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will not continue to work in a person's life indefinitely. And, and, and then absolutely, when a person dies, then it's too late to respond to the Holy Spirit. And so the greatest danger in resisting the Holy Spirit is that, is that you just run out of time. Another danger to resisting the Holy Spirit is, is, is becoming hard-hearted. You see, it may not be that the clock expires. It may be that your heart is just too hard to hear. I've uh, shared this illustration with you before, but if I, if I went out here and tried to dig a ditch around the church with a shovel, I wouldn't get very far around the church before my hands would blister. I don't do that kind of work very often. And my hands would, 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 would blister and, and, and it would hurt. But if I continued to do that, and if I did it day after day and week after week, what would happen to my hands? They wouldn't blister anymore. They would be, they would get hard. They, I would have calluses on my hands. See, that can happen to our hearts. And if we resist and we resist and we resist, eventually those blisters turn to calluses and our heart becomes hard. And we don't ever hear from God anymore. We, we don't have any desire to hear from God. We have so resisted that we have really inoculated ourselves from, from the Spirit's work. And then... The third danger, the third consequence to resisting the spirit is that it could lead to the second sin against the spirit, blaspheming against the spirit, to blaspheme against the spirit. Uh, We see this in a few places in scripture. I I, I draw your attention to Mark chapter three, where the Bible says people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, this is one of those pastor questions when people say, Pastor, I just got a question I've always wondered. Uh, It's usually just two or three, it's just one of two or three questions that they'll ask. Uh, But this is one of them. What is blasphemy against the Spirit? Or sometimes they'll ask it this way, what is the unpardonable sin? Well, This too is a sin that can only be committed by someone who is not a child of God. Uh, And to understand it, we have to first understand some things about forgiveness. The Bible does not give us a list of particularly terrible sins that the Lord refuses to forgive. I think that's what people often think. That there's something, there's some list of sins that are so awful, that are so terrible, that God won't forgive those sins. But but no, the blood of Christ is sufficient to forgive all sins. God's son lived a perfect life and died on the cross to forgive all sins. There's no list of sins too terrible for, for God to forgive. I think about... Uh, David in the Old Testament, a man after God's own heart, 
what were some of the sins in David's life? Well, uh, adultery and, and lying and murder, conspiracy to murder anyway. David was guilty of terrible sins, but he experienced the forgiveness of the Lord. Read Psalm 51. I think about um, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament wrote much of what we call the New Testament today. And the Apostle Paul was responsible before he was a child of God for rounding up Christians and having them thrown into prison and finding Christians and some of those having them executed because of their faith. Paul, guilty of the worst of sins. But Paul was forgiven and became a child of God, an apostle of, of, of Jesus Christ. So there's no, there's no list of sins God can't forgive. And we need to be thankful for that because if God started making a list of sins that were bad, I'm telling you, my sins and your sins would be on that list. Now, to blaspheme against the Spirit is not to commit some sin on some list, but to blaspheme against the Spirit is to reject the primary mission and message of the Holy Spirit. The primary mission and message of the Holy Spirit is that lost people who are dead in their sins and headed for an eternity in hell must turn to Christ and accept the grace and the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, surrendering to him, trusting in him. That's the primary message and ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you reject that, there's no more hope. That's the message of the Bible. There's no more hope. There's no second chance. There's no do-over. There's no reset beyond the grave. If you reject the message of the Holy Spirit and the call of the Holy Spirit to Christ, then that is a sin that will never be forgiven. At some point in the life of a lost person, at some point, he will say no, 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 and no one too many times. And he will then at that point be guilty of rejecting the message and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that person will forever and ever uh, be, be lost. Uh, people might ask, and people do ask, when will that happen? Well, certainly at death, uh, but it can happen far before death. I think of uh, the book of Proverbs chapter 1, which was instrumental in me coming to know the Lord. Uh, read that chapter, Proverbs 1. It says that God will call out to us and call out to us and call out to us. And we understand now that that means calling out to us through the Holy Spirit. God will call out to us. But if we refuse and refuse and refuse, then one day God will turn his back and calamity will come. And we will cry out to the Lord, but the Lord will not hear us and will not respond to us because it is too late. It is too late. And we're guilty of blaspheming the Holy Spirit and our fate is sealed. Uh, you, you know, it's interesting in the Bible, God never places a limit on his grace and his mercy. Never. But he does place a limit on his patience. The long suffering of the Lord has given us a time, but the patience of God has an end. And so that's blaspheming against the Spirit. Now, let me take you to the third sin 
against the Spirit, and we could spend a lot more time on each of these, but quickly the third is the quenching of the Spirit. Now this is something uh, different from the first two because the first two uh, are, are sins that only lost people can commit, but quenching of the Spirit can only be committed uh, by, a, by a child of God. First Thessalonians 5.19, in my Bible translation it says, don't stifle the Spirit. In many translations it does say don't quench the Spirit. Uh, to quench something is to uh, it, it's, it's, imagine a, 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 a hot pan that you've just uh, used on the stove and, and then maybe you, you plunge it into cold water and it just, it, it, it makes that sound. In fact, the word quench comes from the sound that it makes. It just quenches the heat of that and instantly cools it off. Think of a blacksmith as he's uh, heated some piece of metal and, and hammered it into shape and then, he, and then he puts it into the water and makes that quench sound and the heat is just immediately taken away from that uh, piece, of, uh, piece of metal. The Holy Spirit of God is constantly working, working in your life and my life and the lives of all the people around us. But if we're not careful, we can quench we can, we can pour cold water on what the Lord, what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives or somebody else's life. Our actions can distract people. Our actions can discourage people. Our actions can quench the Spirit. I was um, first church I was senior pastor of in uh, uh, Mississippi a thousand years ago, it seems like now. Uh, the Lord sent a revival, uh, just, just an amazing time. It's only once, maybe twice in my ministry, I've been a part of something like this. And, and the Lord just for, out of his kindness, decided to touch our church and our community. Uh, the church had, um, I don't think baptized anybody in three years uh, prior to this. And it was a church that for all practical purposes, should have just closed up shop. It was just um, using up resources. But the Holy Spirit, the, the hand of God just came down on this church and people started following Christ. Uh, we, um, we baptized 100 people that year. Um, the church um, multiplied in size several fold. We were building buildings, expanding buildings, just trying to keep up. It was, was so exciting and it was really this um, unexplainable phenomenon. We couldn't really point to, to some human thing that started it. It just started and it built upon itself. And so there were times when we would have service and um, I'm not brave enough to do this now and maybe Maybe that's part of the problem, but we would have a service and, uh, and we would just stop and let people stand up and say what the Lord's doing in their life. It was a much smaller church. And, and so we had one of those services. I did preach a message, you know, they didn't get out of that, but, uh, um, but we asked if, uh, you know, some people wanted to share and I don't know, we had six or eight people already prayed to receive Christ right in the front in that service. It was, we just had these services all the time for months. And, 
And so people were popping up and they were talking about how God had changed their life and people were confessing sins and people were, it was, um, it was something. People were weeping and there was, there was one fellow, I won't call his name, but uh, uh, some from that church may be watching this morning. They'll know exactly who I'm talking about. He was a, was a politician in town and I think he just really felt bad that he wasn't a part of what God was doing. Uh, so he stood up and when he stood up, I thought, oh, wow, God's really moving. <laughs> if, uh, and he said, um, I want to give a report from the local uh, volunteer fire department. And then he gave the fire department report. You know, in the last six months, we've responded to this many calls and we've got this amount of money in our checking account. And it was just as if you had taken water and just poured it on a fire. It just quenched the Holy Spirit. And when he finished, everybody just looked at each other and there was nothing else to do. We just went home. And uh, the revival continued uh, beyond that, but it didn't continue that day. The, the spirit had been quenched. Uh, I, I remember when I was a, a youth pastor, often we would have these big retreats and God would work in the lives of young people and they would come back and they would go to mom and dad and they would say, you wouldn't believe what the Lord is doing in my life. And sometimes they would get this reaction, well, that'll pass. And it's just like the water's been poured on their child. The spirit has been quenched. We need to be careful that we do not become those who quench the spirit working in the lives of others. There will always be people who feel like they have the, uh, the, the ministry of problem identification and they'll just complain and complain and complain and they can never see the, the hand of God doing the great things that God is doing and we just quench the spirit. And we have to be careful that we don't do that in our families or our church or our communities. When God begins to work, we need to get behind it. But then finally, all that to get to this, uh, there's the sin of grieving the Spirit. We read it in verse 30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. This is a sin that only the children of God can commit. What does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? It means that our sin can break the heart, so to speak, of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God loves us so deeply. And the Spirit of God wants for us that we would live a life of holiness and purity that honors the Lord and knows the joy of the Lord and God's peace. And when we sin and when we compromise ourselves, the Holy Spirit loves us so much, he is grieved over our sin. You know, occasionally somebody will come to me and they'll confess some sin. And some man will come or some woman will come and, and they'll say, oh, pastor, I've, I've committed some terrible sin. And, and they'll tell me about the sin and they're just broken over it. And uh, inevitably, they will then tell me how one of their loved ones, maybe a spouse, has, is aware of the sin. 
And then I'll ask in my mind, uh, usually not out loud, but I'll occasionally, um, I'll ask, why is this person so broken over this sin today when this sin has been going on for six months or a year or longer? And you know the answer. It's not the sin that they're so much broken over. They're broken over the fact that it broke the heart of their spouse. Does that make sense? What changed in the last two days that made that person come to me? Well, it wasn't that their sin started in the last two days. It's that now somebody is grieved over their sin. And it's that grief that gets our attention. Listen, the Holy Spirit loves you more than anybody loves you. And the Holy Spirit knows everything. And the Holy Spirit, because of all of that, is grieved over our sin. And that should shake us. I'll tell you uh, something that happened in my life. Before I was a Christian, I was a junior in high school, I guess near the beginning of my junior year. And I had done some things with two or three friends of mine that uh, I don't even want to repeat. They were foolish and childish and reckless and irresponsible and and just sinful. And we had done these and it affected the local school and affected the city and uh, was on the news. It was, um, yeah, it was terrible. And I, uh, I regret it in every way. I don't, like I said, a lot of years ago, I don't like to talk about the specifics. But as big a deal as it was in our, in our area, uh, I, I, me and my friends, we thought we'd gotten away with it. We thought, uh, we were laughing about it. We thought that uh, we had done this and nobody knew. And then one night, um, I got up for some reason in the middle of the night, two or three o'clock in the morning, and I, I walked into the kitchen maybe to get a drink of water or something, and my stepfather was in the kitchen, and I guess he was fixing something to drink as well. And my mom and my stepdad's Uh, bedroom was right off the kitchen and I could hear that my mom was just weeping I don't mean just casually crying the door was closed but I could still hear her just uncontrollably sobbing and I asked my stepfather what's wrong with mom and he looked at me and he just paused And then this is all he said, your mom knows what you did. And he went back in the room and closed the door. And I tell you, my mom and I, we have never had a conversation about that to this day. But I was never, there was no punishment that could have been issued that could have been worse and me just standing in that kitchen all by myself for the next however many minutes and just listening to my mom grieving over my sin. Grieving and disappointment and frustration. She was broken hearted over my sin. 
What does it mean when it says in Ephesians 4.30 that the Holy Spirit can grieve over our sins? It means that the Holy Spirit loves you way more than my mom loves me and that our sin breaks his heart. He grieves over our sin. So here's what I want us to do as we just close this time. I want us to confess our sins. I want us to do it in a way, uh, for those of us who are children of God, I want us to do it in a, in a different way. I want us to go before the Lord and confess our sins, name our sins, recognizing that our sins bring grief to the Holy Spirit, but also recognizing that the blood of Christ has cleansed us from those things. You know how a Christian confesses his sins? I hope this is something you do every day. A Christian confesses his sins by saying, Father, I've been guilty of this. And I agree with you that that is wrong. And I know that that grieves the Holy Spirit of God. But I also know that you have forgiven me because I'm your child and because Christ has died for me. And so I confess my sins, but I do it with a heart of thanksgiving for the forgiveness, the grace, and the mercy of God. And here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to stand and, and, and sing. And you can sing aloud or you can just bow your head, but I want you to confess your sins with a heart of thanksgiving. And when we finish this time, then we're going to take together the Lord's Supper because that's the explanation, that's, the, uh, that, that, that's the, the hurrah, that's the, that's, that's the ultimate celebration of our thankfulness for the grace and mercy of God that forgives our sins. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to recognize that our sins have grieved the Holy Spirit. We're going to agree with God and we're going to be thankful for that forgiveness. And then we're going to celebrate that by taking together the Lord's Supper. Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you. For those of us who know Christ is our Savior, that our sins have been forgiven from beginning to end, big and small, singular and repeated. Father, thank you that our sins are forgiven. But you still tell us that confessing those sins is important, recognizing that they grieve your Holy Spirit, celebrating and thankful, our thankful hearts for your forgiveness. Father, as we stand and sing, Help us to confess every sin that you bring to our minds. And may you be honored by our thankfulness. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing and respond.